Tonight and the next six weeks are going to be something different than I've ever done, ever, actually, but certainly on Sunday nights. And these are going to be a series of lectures. These are not sermons, per se. Uh, I think it's important to get that out up front because uh, they're not. This is a lecture we're going to be covering important biblical material that I think is important to our lives, but uh, just so you know, I am not considering this a sermon series as much as it is a lecture on an important area of theology. So with that, let me pray for us one more time. God, again, we need you to be here among us. We need you to send your spirit of peace so that we may, Lord, um, have hearts that are willing to learn, and we may have hearts that are, are humble and willing to hear ideas that perhaps we don't agree with. And Lord, perfect unity on, this, on these issues is not the most important. So Lord, let us agree to love one another and glorify you as we do. In Jesus' name, amen. As you all know, eschatology, or the study of the end times, is a very divisive issue. And I went through three years of seminary, and finally, on my last semester, I took the eschatology class, because I could always say before that, I haven't taken that class yet. I went to a seminary that was, we considered it Dallas Theological Seminary West, because all of our Bible and our theology professors had graduated with a degree, one degree or another, from Dallas. So it was a very dispensational school. That's going to be a word that you hear me say uh, quite a bit over the next six weeks, dispensational. I'm not going to really go into that tonight, uh, but if you're familiar with it, you'll, you'll know what I'm talking about. Shortly after leaving seminary, I came across a verse that in my mind was the most important verse to understanding the book of Revelation. That verse is Romans 15.4. For whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, here it is, we might have hope. My friends, tonight and the next several weeks, what I want to encourage us with is hope. Hope that the God of the universe, the God that created Saturn, and the God that created you, is also the God who gave us his word so that we would be encouraged and so that we might have hope. So whatever else we deal with, as we deal with, frankly, some difficult ideas over the next several weeks, I want us to have hope. And so, to begin with that, I gave you my notes, and this, most of what I'm going to say is on the sheets in front of you, and uh, also Chuck put it on the slides above me. But I want you to get an idea of where we're going so that you can uh, look up these verses later. So let's begin with the very first point, and that is what can we agree on? 
Again, there are four major views of the end times. And I'm, go I'm going to go through all these. Or I'm just going to kind of water ski through them right now. There's four major views. The first view that I'll address is called post-millennialism. And post-millennialism means that the church, as it exists today, is going to go through history and eventually establish enough evangelism around the world that society is fundamentally changed and for a thousand year period there is great peace and harmony and great things will happen following that thousand years of the church being um, expressed all over the world. Jesus Christ will return and we will enter into the eternal kingdom. The second major view that is held by Bible-believing, Christ-honoring people is amillennialism. And the amillennialist kind of shrinks that up a little bit and says, no, there is a church age in which Christ and the saints who have departed are ruling in the intermediate state, and they are ruling in a millennium that doesn't really appear on earth, and this is uh, a time of the church and it is a time of tribulation and after an indeterminate period of time Christ will come, he will set the world right and we will enter into the eternal state. Then there are two other views uh, that are, are closely related and we're not going to get into really the nitty gritty why they're different tonight but they're both under the title of premillennial. And what the premillennialists believe is that we have the church age and at some point at the end of the church age there will come a time of great tribulation, a period of approximately seven years. And after this great tribulation Christ will return, he will set up an earthly Davidic kingdom in Jerusalem and rule for approximately 1,000 years and then a final battle will happen which will usher in uh, the cataclysm that ends the world as we know it and ushers in the eternal age after that. Now there are two kinds of dispensation or two kinds of premillennialists and uh, the fundamental difference that I'm going to talk about tonight and this is just a water ski. I'm just water skiing through. We're going to talk a lot about all these issues as we go through. But the first one is the dispensational view of premillennialism. And they, the key difference today that we're going to talk about is the fact that they believe that Christ is going to come part way down from heaven. He's going to rapture the church. He will... Uh, says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, he will catch up, catch us up into the clouds. And this rapture will end the church age, will begin what we call the great tribulation and all kinds of bad things are going to happen. And then he will finish coming down at the end of the tribulation and set up the millennial kingdom. Whereas those who call themselves historic premillennialists 
believe that we will go through the church age at some point, which we may be able to guess once it happens, or we may not be able to guess once it happens. The tribulation will begin this period of seven years. And following this period of seven years, Christ will come. He will rapture the church. He will gather those who are dead in Christ. He will finish coming down to the earth, and he will set up his kingdom with those saints who have come this far and enter into a thousand year period uh, kingdom. Listen, when I was doing my doctoral studies, one of the things that our professors kept saying to us is you're going to have to hear things over and over before they make a lot of sense. Now, I imagine that most of you in this room have heard of these four categories before. Some of you have probably read more than I have. But here's, here's the thing. We're going to talk more about each of those. But what I want to stress right now in a very quick manner is that you can be a Bible-believing, Christ-honoring, going to heaven and celebrating for all eternity person and hold any one of those four beliefs. You can be a Christian who is a post-millennialist. You can be a Christian who is an amillennialist. You can be a Christian who's a dispensationalist. And you can be a Christian who's a historic premillennialist. These are all perfectly acceptable views to take. And I know for a fact that there's at least three out of those four in this room and I, I believe that we will all celebrate in heaven together. Now, for the other two groups of you guys out there, I'll, I'll give you instruction once we get there, okay? <laughs> and while we're at it, while we're, while we're here, while we're stressing the fact that you can be a Bible-believing, Christ-honoring Christian who is going to heaven and hold any one of these four beliefs any one of these four eschatological systems, there are at least six things that we all agree on. And I want to emphasize that right now because there's going to be plenty of things that we end up disagreeing. Some of you are going to disagree with one set of things that I say. Some of you are going to disagree with another set of things that I say. And I, I'm happy with that. Perhaps you're right, and you'll instruct me when we get raptured. But these, these six things, I want us to know that we all agree on. And the first one, 1A, is we don't have perfect knowledge about these things. When, when I say something like, for example, uh, undiminished deity united together with perfect humanity forever in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, I am describing an undeniable fact of Christology. I'm saying God came and united forever in the man Jesus of Nazareth forever. That is what we call the hypostatic union. There, there aren't any Bible-believing, Christ-honoring Christians who have been instructed in this area who disagree with that. Do you understand that, that is something that happened. It happened 2,000 years ago. The Bible gives us very clear instruction about it, and we don't debate that. 
Now, perhaps you've never heard that, and if you haven't, that's okay. Ask me later or ask one of us on staff later, and we'll talk about that. But this is stuff about the future. And by definition, for us mortals, there's a lot we don't know about the future. Now, God has given us much knowledge in his word about the future. And there are some things that we can absolutely say with certainty, but there are a lot that we cannot. So the first point is we must be able to agree to disagree. Now, the second point is Bible-believing, Christ-honoring people have disagreed about these issues for thousands of years. In other words, I, I've joked with several of you, and over the last couple of weeks, I've been talking about the fact that, well, six weeks of eschatology, and I'm going to answer all your questions. Well, you know, I'm, you know that I'm kidding, because I know that I can't. And one of the things, when we have our, our four contestants up here, and we're taking questions from you, and we're debating each other, one of the things I think you'll see is that every one of these four views has holes in it. None of, none of our views are perfect. By, by definition, we need to understand that. And Bible-believing, Christ-honoring people have disagreed. The third point that we must agree on is that prophecy should encourage us, not divide us. Prophecy found in Scripture is always there to encourage us. And I already read this verse, but it bears repeating. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. My friends, capture this. Over these next six weeks, we are going, we should leave here encouraged. We should leave here wanting to glorify God because we know that he wins. Amen? Amen. Amen. And there is one thing, and I'll clarify what I'm about to say in a second, but there is one thing that we must agree on. This is the one thing about eschatology that if you don't agree on, you're probably not a Christian. And that one thing is this. Christ will suddenly, personally, visibly, and bodily return. Christ is coming again. Amen. I need some amens on that. That is, that is the one thing over this next six weeks that you must believe to be a Bible-believing, Christ-honoring Christian. Most of the rest of what I'm going to say does not fall on this category. In fact, I can't think of anything else I'm going to say that would. Christ will suddenly, personally, visibly, and bodily return. And there's probably some more adverbs that you can put on there too, but those are the ones that came to my mind. The fifth thing that we should agree on is we should look forward to Christ's return. We should be anticipating with joy Titus 2, 11 and 13, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live a self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now that is both an absolutely stunningly glorious verse 
And it also happens to be a verse we're going to fight about. But that's okay. Right now, just take it as it is. And we're going to be rejoicing that this is hope. This is glory. Revelation 22:20. 20, he who testifies to these says, says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Maranatha. Right? Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. And lastly, 6, none of us knows when Christ is going to return. All the herald campings that have come along in the 2,000 years, guess what? They're all wrong. You will never hear me say something along the lines of, on December 22nd, you know what? Last week, it was a really bad accident. I was in the kitchen. I was playing with my crystal ball, and it fell, and it just shattered. So I can't look into my crystal ball. It's gone. And not only that, but Jesus says himself, Matthew 24, 44, Therefore you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And, you know, we heard our, our prophets saying things like, Well, we don't know what hour, but we could tell what day and what month. No. Belagna. It, we, we don't know, and we, we need to agree that we agree that we don't know. Amen? Amen. Okay, now this next thing, I, I didn't get verses up. Uh, so if you just want to put a blank slide. Oh, actually, you have opinion. Okay. This is an important concept. And many of you have heard me say this, this concept before. But I want to give a little bit of scriptural background to it. Because it is not true that everything that the Bible teaches is equally gospel. Ooh. Anybody going to shoot me for that? Okay. Hear me out on this. Hear me out. This is, this is very important. We are not going to agree on everything. And there are some things that we in our lives will come in contact with that we just don't know to the same degree. And uh, one of my professors kind of broke this out. And he said that there's three levels of belief in the Pauline epistles. And the first one is opinion. And I'm going to go through this really quickly. 1 Corinthians 7. 1 Corinthians 7, 6 through 8 says... He says, now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. This wish, he's telling them, look, this is my opinion. This is my, this isn't the word that I'm using here. This is my opinion. I think this would be best for you. He says in another place, he says, you know, this is what I think would be best and I have the Holy Spirit, so he's kind of adding a little uh, jibe in there. But he's saying, this is, this is what I think. He's not making a categorical command here in this passage. He's, he's stating an opinion. And you know what? Opinions, opinions abound. Now, if you run into a really godly man like the Apostle Paul, and he says, this is my opinion, hmm, you might want to listen to that. that. That might carry weight more than, you know, someone who's living a wretch 
of a life. But the point is the same. An opinion is not a command, is not something that you must believe. Now there's a second level of belief, and that is in a very famous passage in Romans chapter 14. I'm going to read a few verses and then we'll talk about it. And this is the persuasion level. Pleroforeo. Boy, I, my Greek pronunciation isn't as good as it used to be. In, in Romans 14, starting verse 5, he says, One person esteems one day better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be, here's our word, fully convinced. I'm using persuasion because that comes out of the NASB, which was the Bible when I was in seminary. You weren't allowed to have anything besides NASB back then. And that word is persuasion. Each one should be fully persuaded or fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in the honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord. Since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in the honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and of the living. This is a, this, this passage deserves a whole sermon, but I'm only, I'm going to do it in about two minutes. Here's Paul's point. He's saying there are key things in the scripture that you should study and become persuaded about. You should want to know what the Bible says about certain disputed teachings. In fact, there isn't a teaching in the Bible that is significant that hasn't been disputed by somebody. So, just because something is disputed does not mean that you shouldn't study to find out what your take on that issue is. And most of what we're going to talk about in eschatology falls under this persuasion level issue. And a persuasion level issue is something, two characteristics. One is it should not be used to divide Christians from Christians. In other words, you are persuaded your way and you have arguments and I'm persuaded my way and I have arguments and we should be able to come together even if we can't agree we should be able to step aside afterwards give each other a hug and when they're doing evangelism say woohoo and likewise. Now persuasion level issues on the other hand might make different churches. So, for example, let me pick one that's also caused a lot of division, and that is the use of the sign gifts, the, the use of the charismatic gifts. There are Bible-believing, Christ-honoring churches in Santa Maria, California, that differ from us on the issue of the charismatic gifts. Now, they're clearly wrong. I'm kidding. <laughs> persuaded. But I'm persuaded that they're wrong. But listen, my brother Dennis, who was the associate pastor of Foursquare here in Santa Maria, he just retired. I love my brother. We've had lunch together. We've done Serve Santa Maria stuff together. We've, we've hung out together and talked and we've shared each other's testimonies. We've shared prayer requests. But you know what? He thinks of me as this uptight Baptist and I think of him as a wacko charismatic. You know what? 
normal Sunday mornings just wouldn't work. Do you understand? And I can bless Foursquare and say, praise Jesus. I hope they win a lot of souls and I hope they disciple a lot of believers. And the people that they reach probably aren't going to come to an uptight Baptist church. We're not as uptight as Baptists used to be. But, <laughs> but, but the point is, is that God has created much diversity and because of this diversity we can reach more people. This is a persuasion level belief. This is something that we can have different opinions on and if it's strong enough we might choose to go to two different churches but we know that we're going to spend eternity for, forever together and we're going to be giving each other high fives and celebrating for all eternity together. Got that? That's, that's an important that's an important one. That's the persuasion level issue. Now there's a conviction level issue. And conviction, the word conviction is not found in the Bible. But the idea, I believe, is in Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2 in verse 11. But when Cephas, Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led, the son of encouragement, was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw... Here's a key phrase. When I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the good news of Jesus Christ, he confronted Peter. Okay, here's, here's the thing. There are beliefs that if you hold a contrary belief, you are probably not a Christian. You are actively going against the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not going to get into the issue, well, what if, what if they never learned that? I'm not getting into that here right now. We're talking about obvious issues. And the one obvious issue that we're going to be discussing over the next six weeks is the personal, bodily, visible, sudden return of Jesus Christ. That is a conviction level issue. And if you don't hold to that issue, then you're probably not a Christian. I just want to test you guys just for a second. Somebody else give me a conviction level issue. I just want to make sure you're understanding the idea that not, it doesn't have to do with eschatology, but just another one. Grace Salvation by grace through faith. Amen. That is one of our conviction level issues. And that is one that if you don't hold to that, you're not a Christian. And by the way, when you start going to cults, when you start going to quasi-lying uh, churches, that's the one that they always uh, dive in after. They might even be premillennialists, but they're wrong about that, and therefore they're lost. Yeah, you, some of you caught that. Anyways, okay. The rest of you, don't worry. So... Opinion level issues, everybody's got opinions, and in this room there's, you know, 300 opinions about 400 things. Persuasion level issues, there are dozens of persuasion level issues. 
there's probably 10 to 15 conviction level issues. Maybe 8 to 10. There's really not very many that you must believe in order to be a Bible-believing, Christ-honoring Christian. So, I want to go with uh, the Lutheran theologian. His name is Rupert Meldenius. Meldenius. Rupert Meldenius. He is the one who came up with the phrase that most of you have heard at one time or another, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity. Again, I want to, I want to hammer that each week, that even the times that we end up disagreeing with each other in essentials unity and non-essentials liberty and in all things charity. Okay, so I want to get into our first possible area of disagreement and I want to do it in a way that shows my, my principle in essentials, unity, and non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity. And I want to ask the question, is Christ's return imminent? Could Christ return before I finish this lecture? And all of us say, Lord, I hope so. Amen? <laughs> Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Maranatha. And there, there is good evidence to say yes to that statement. And I, I only picked uh, four possible verses. There, there are others, but most of them are just a, a reflection of these same ideas. Matthew 24, 50. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and an hour he does not know. We don't know when it's going to be. Could be any time. Luke 12, 40. You also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Revelation 1, 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written for the time is near. Revelation 22, 12. Behold, I am coming soon. Amen, Lord Jesus. Bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. And there, there's, there's like 20 passages. And again, I just picked a couple of them. And some of you maybe even have some memorized that are your favorite ones that talk about the fact that Christ can return at any moment. Any questions about that? Anybody uh, have one they want to throw out as, as a favorite of theirs that they just love? Hey, Christ can return at any moment. I know I'm kind of dropping that on you. But hey, he can come at any moment and we say amen. amen. Now, at the same time, there are passages that talk about the fact that there are signs that need to be fulfilled before his return. Okay, I know some of you are thinking right now, yes, but the second coming and the rapture are two different things. Okay, all right, fair enough, I hear you. We're going to get to that, not tonight and not even next week, but we will get to the, the supposed difference between the rapture and the second coming. Uh, but there are passages that clearly have signs before Christ is to, to come. 
Mark 13, 7 and 8. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. Continuing, same chapter, verse 10. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all the nations. Same chapter, verse 22. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. Verses 24 and 25. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. We'll skip Second Thessalonians right now. Romans eleven twelve. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their the the uh, Jews their full inclusion mean? Verse twenty five and twenty six. Lest you be wise in your own sight. Oh my goodness, we we got to pause right there for a second. Hear that, Greg Burtnett. Hear that. Lest you be wise in your own sight. Lest you think you got all this stuff figured out, Harold Camping. I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. Okay, let's pause here for a second. We have this we have a tension. And on the one hand of this tension, there are lots of verses that talk about the imminency of Christ's return. The fact that Christ can return at any moment and we have no idea when that moment is. Those two ideas are combined in this idea of imminency. Could happen at any moment. And listen... Everybody has to deal with those passages. Everybody has to come to terms with the reality that the Bible clearly states that Christ can return at any moment. Likewise, everybody has to deal with the fact that there appear to be lots of passages that say that these particular things must take place first before Christ can return. Now let me say this. I think that the dispensationalists have come up with a good solution for that. We'll see if, if I agree 100% with them as we go on. But they've at least, they have taken seriously the reality of this tension. This tension that Christ can come back at any moment and with the fact that um, there are signs that need to be taken care of first. And so, in light of this tension, we must live in expectation. Hopeful, joyous expectation. We must rejoice at the fact that we could be gone tonight and we will be praising Jesus forever. Amen? This is hope, my friends. This is joy. This is what's going to encourage you when you go to work tomorrow and your boss is a jerk. This is what's going to encourage you when your spouse is ill. This is what's going to encourage you when your child is wandering astray. This is hope, 
my friends. And we must not lose sight of that. We must cling to these verses because God is stronger than any of your problems. Amen. And God is strong enough that if he chooses to tarry till after the tribulation, your God is strong enough to give you the courage to go through that tribulation with your eyes set on the fact that he will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but with the temptation he'll also provide a way out so that you can stand under it, stand up under it. He will also strengthen you while you're going through this temptation so that this, this um, tribulation, if he chooses to let us go through it, he will strengthen you. And not only will he strengthen you, but he will use you as his tool to make his glory go forth all the brighter. That doesn't mean that your neighbors are going to come to Christ. That doesn't mean that they won't burn your house down around your ears. But what it does mean is that not a hair of your head shall perish. God will watch out for you and he will raise you from the dead and you will be with him in your body. As Job says, I will see my redeemer in my flesh. And I do my best to make it easier on God by getting rid of hairs on my head so they, that, that won't be a problem. Okay. <laughs> So we have this tension. And as I said, I'm going to keep referring to these and I'll flesh them out as we go along. But I keep referring to these four evangelical options. There's four Bible-believing, Christ-honoring options that we can be persuaded about in talking about these end-time events. And again, the first one is the post-millennial um, option. The post-millennial I option here thinks that there, there's actually kind of two post-millennial views and, and they kind of separate on this issue. One of them thinks that, well, the tribulation is already happening and uh, we will enter into a period of approximately a thousand years of, of happiness and then Christ will return. So they cannot strictly say that Christ can return at any moment, the, the post-millennial view, which is a pretty powerful uh, argument against their view, in my opinion. Uh, the amillennial is actually, along with the disp their dispensational brethren, even though they don't uh, always see eye to eye, the amillennial and the dispensational have the, the most ability to say, yeah, Christ can come back right now. And it'll be a total surprise. And here we go, we're in heaven. And my my very good dispensational friend of mine, when we were talking about this years ago at the church in Rialto, he would say to me, Tom Fontanis, he would say, Greg, don't worry, I'll explain it to you on the way up. <laughs> and, and so, the, the post-millennialists, I, I have to admit, I did not do all my homework on the post-millennial, and when we have our little 
debate up here. Uh, Pastor Benji agreed to do a little bit of research on there. It's not a view he holds either, but he's going to take their side when we have our little debate. But uh, I, I'm, I'm really not sure because I don't understand it, and we'll, we'll see if we understand a little bit more. The amillennial and the dispensational, as I said, both of them can say uh, with perfect equanimity, hey, Christ can come at any moment. Then there's the fourth view that, uh, again, Bible-believing, Christ-honoring people hold, and that is the historic pre-mill view. That is the view that the rapture won't occur until after uh, the tribulation. Now, the, the historic pre-mill guys have to say one of two things. One is it's possible, although not likely, that the different signs of Christ's return have already happened, and therefore Christ can come at any moment. The other thing historic pre-mill people have to say is that for whatever reason, for example, one reason they might give is that Satan is the father of lies and he is the one who is deceiving the whole world. And therefore, we don't know that we are in the tribulation and we are living through the seven years now. And all of these things like the stars falling, the moon and the sun turning to blood and all these spectacular things that I would say haven't happened yet could theoretically, when you look at them, happen in 15 minutes. And, you know, all of these things, bang, 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 and in 15 minutes from right now, we could be being raptured. Um, and I will get more to discussing the imminency issue because there's more to be said about that uh, when I actually say what I really believe. But the, the key to the historic pre-mill guy is to say that this is, this is one of the difficulties of the historic pre-mill view. Remember I said every one of them has little holes that you can shoot through it. And I would say this is one of the difficulties. But I myself say that, hey, Jesus says he can come back at any time. I say he can come back at any time. And if that doesn't fit perfectly with my view, well, so much the worse for my view. Amen? You all can laugh at me about that. I, I'm easy to laugh at. Uh, amen. <laughs> that was my son who just said amen to that. Yes, thank you, son. How, how are you getting home tonight? <laughs> I want to read, I want to read a, an important quote by a guy named Robert Mounts who wrote one of the best commentaries on the book of Revelation. And he says, the central message of the, this book, book of Revelation, is eschatological, deals with the end times. And to whatever extent the end has been anticipated in the course of history, and what he means by anticipated is there have been signs that the end is coming or could even be right now, He's talking about the different things. It yet remains as the one great climatic point towards which all history moves. In other words, all these things that the fall of Jerusalem, for example, the rise of the various antichrists like Hitler, for example, all of these things 
that happened, they didn't bring in the end. The end is still to come. And we're still going through history towards that end. And if you want to understand the book of Revelation, all you need to do is know two words. God wins. God wins. Jesus is visibly, personally, suddenly, bodily coming, and he's going to squish all of his enemies like a bug, and it's going to be done, and he wins. No matter how much it hurts on the way, or that we get raptured. The last point I want to deal with tonight is uh, the idea of pan-millennialism. And you've heard this joke. I didn't make it up. But pan-millennialism says, hey, I don't know if he's coming back here. I don't know if he's coming back there. But it's all going to pan out in the end. <laughs> what I want to say to you is I want to give you at least two reasons to reject that view. And the two reasons to reject that view, the first one is found in Proverbs 25.2 where it says, it is the glory of God to conceal a matter and it is the glory of kings to search it out. Now ironically, I said that a week or two ago in Sunday school and someone brought up the point, well, maybe we should give glory to God by not searching it out. And I thought, oh my Lord, I've never thought of that idea before. I think what the the Solomon, the proverb is, is saying though, is God is glorified by hiding things. There are things that we cannot know. There are things that, that need to be searched out. And that is why it is the glory of kings to search it out. And God has given us this word. And notice, he didn't just download it into our brains. Could God have done that? Sure he could have. But he didn't. And so obviously he means for us to dig and find gold and diamonds because they're not just scattered along the ground. You got to dig to get those diamonds and those emeralds and those rubies. And so it is the glory of kings to search the matter out. Which leads us to our second point. And that is that God and eschatology cannot be comprehended. We cannot understand everything there is about the subject. In fact, you and I are going to spend the next 10 billion, 10 billion years learning more about God because he will never be exhausted in his glory. And we will always be the finite creatures that are growing and are rejoicing. The reason why we're going to have such a great time in heaven, in large measure, is because we're going to be getting more and more and more about God. And therefore, we will rejoice. He will never be comprehended. But God has created us to understand him. We will never have all truth, but we can have true truth. We will never know everything there is to know, but he has given us the capacity to know a lot. And I'm doing this series of lectures for two reasons. One, because several of you have been asking me to do it, and I told you, after school, after school, after, well, 
I'm done with school now, so I'm finally coming good on that promise after all this time. But number two, uh, to be honest, I studied in seminary to pass my test, and I called myself a dispensationalist because that's what we did. And then probably a year or two after seminary, I, I read a handful of books. I read probably three or four books, and I became enamored with historic premillennialist view. Over the last, um, well, several months, but really over the last month or so, uh, I've, I've been given the privilege of being able to sit down and read and think about a lot of things. And I'm really happy about it because I really do think I've confirmed where I was before. But I want to say that this issue, when you go to the individual passages that cause all the arguments, for the most part, what determines what a person views about those passages are the glasses that they're wearing. And some of us are wearing post-millennial glasses, some of us are wearing amillennial glasses, some are wearing dispensational glasses, and some of us are wearing the right glasses. One more quote. Paul Feinberg, dispensationalist, says this. There are those who find the question of the rapture, and I put in brackets millennium because that's what we're talking about right now. There are those who find the question of the millennium insignificant and uninteresting. They pride themselves on being above the battle, above the fray. But this is wrong. Theologically, no aspect of revealed truth is unimportant. The millennium touches the extremely important issues of biblical interpretation, the relationship between the church and Israel, and the course of human history. Those three topics he just named are ones that we are going to major on over the next couple of weeks. Practically, the time of the rapture or the millennium is significant because we aspire to know the whole counsel of God. Furthermore, this matter touches the important issue of the nature of the Christian's hope and expectation. Am I to expect Christ's return at any moment? Or is my hope the protection in and deliverance from God for, from, I think it's by God, from a time of worldwide tribulation? This, I think, is an excellent summary of what we are going to talk about over the next six weeks. And if I can just say this, I don't want to persuade you to become historic premillennialists. If you're a dispensationalist and, and you're embracing that, praise Jesus. You and I are going to find so much in common that it will be refreshing. If you're an mill or a post-mill guy, we are going to find things that we're also in common. But my point is not to convert anybody to an eschatological position. My point, if necessary, is to convert you to the idea that Christ is coming soon. Therefore, get ready. Amen? Amen. Lord Almighty, thank you for this opportunity to come before you once again and before your word. God, give us the grace to have open hearts so that we can receive what you are saying to us, so that we can be the men and women of God you have created us to be. And Lord, let us be strengthened by the encouragement that is found in Scripture so that we might have hope. 
and glorify your name, Lord Jesus, so that you will truly be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. Last announcement before you leave. Um, as I said, there's five more uh, of these lessons that we're going to do. And uh, Pastor Benji came up with a great idea. And that is, uh, if you have a very specific question, especially if it's a question regarding what I just talked about, or like next week, what I talked about that night, write that question down and put it in that box as you're going out. Or send me an email. I am not going to be able to answer every question. I'm sorry. I don't, my brain isn't that big enough. I don't know the answers to all the questions. But I would like to know what you're thinking. And if I missed something or if I didn't say something clearly or perhaps I even misspoke, I want to be able to clarify that. So please do that and we will rejoice.